it's like I said before, it's scary. Like you're going to go and talk to somebody about what the problems are in your relationship. And it requires being very vulnerable. Welcome back to Mom Nation from the Heart. And now a word from our sponsor. Hello everyone, this is Ryan Gilliam, Senior Mortgage Banker with Waterstone Mortgage. If you're looking to buy a new home or even refinance a current one, I'm able to help you find the best program and interest rate that fits your specific needs. You could call me anytime directly at phone number 480-635-3035 if you have any mortgage questions or if you're ready to get pre-approved for a new home purchase. Thank you. Hey, Mom Nation, we are back again with another episode of From the Heart, where we share inspirational stories, useful information, and discuss a variety of women-related topics. I'm Katie, the founder of Mom Nation, and I'd like to extend a very warm welcome to the beautiful, the fantastic, the lovely co-founder, Sherry Ramo. What's up, girl? Hey. How you doing? How are you? I'm good. Amazing. Work been good? Kids been good? Things have been good? Work's been stressful, but we just had a weekend. We got to go hiking, be out in nature. What about you guys? We had a weekend? When did that happen? (laughs) What about the boys? Did the boys get to do anything over the weekend? Yes. um, I think we might have gone to the boat. No, I actually know we did. So it's been a very busy weekend. I don't know if anybody knows out there, but I'm a real estate agent here in the Phoenix area. And if you've heard anything about what the market's doing, it's like bananas. So I was telling Diana before we hopped on, I put like five houses under contract in the last day and a half. So I have not slept. Then we had like this really loud thunderstorm last night. And anyway, here I am today. So I never sleep. No, no. So Sherry has this awesome makeup. So that's what I have down here, like this highlighter, just so that you don't (laughs) see, you know, the mom bags. You're always beautiful. (laughs) Ah, Well, thank you. Well, without further ado, we have a pretty amazing guest on today. And I'm really, really excited about this topic um, for a bunch of reasons, because it pretty much affects everybody that is in a couple. And also because I see so many posts in the Mom Nation group and outside of it, you know, in other groups and other areas about couples therapy, understanding each other, things like that. And there's this like whole giant stigma around it. I don't know. And I don't know what that's all about. So we have the amazing Diana Isel here with us. Sorry, Isel. I totally did that wrong. I told you I was going to do it. (laughs) Diana Isel, couples counselor with us today. And you are out of, is it Gilbert, Arizona? I am right on the border of Mesa and Gilbert. Right on the border. Cool, cool. So Southeast Valley gal over here. Um, Talk to us about what you do. Tell us, give us a little intro, kind of how you got started and like, why is this a passion of yours kind of thing? Yeah, so um, I am an individual and couples counselor. I specialize in couples and um, I'm really passionate about helping people just really communicate with each other in a most effective way. Um, We have two people in any relationship that have grown up so differently, different communication styles, attachment styles, and we're just trying to navigate this crazy thing called a relationship. Um, And I really like to be there to 
um, help people communicate more effectively and also feel really good about the things that they feel like they're doing well. Um, I became passionate about couples therapy just over, over time and helping and seeing those that were really struggling with relationships. I'm in a relationship, I'm married, I've been married for you know 12 years. So it's something that I've certainly run into myself. So I do know that there is you know, a need out there and not a lot of people really wanna talk about it. And it's really difficult to go to friends and family to talk about struggles that you're having in your relationship, right? Because those people aren't objective. You right. know, people are naturally going to pick sides or you know, the whole blood is thicker than water type thing. So it's very hard to go to other people to get objective advice about things that are going on. And sometimes it feels really embarrassing too. So I really like to be that person that creates that, that safety for couples to come to, to talk to um, about their struggles, about their issues and help them see things that can be a lot better and see how things were maybe in the beginning when things felt amazing um, and help them get back to where they want to be. I love that. Um, and I love that what you said about like other family members, you know, um, when we go and we consult with them and we share, you know, he or she's doing such and such and so-and-so, whatever's going on. Um, but what you said was, is you've been like, you were raised with those people, like the, and so you kind of have the same, um, understandings. You kind of have the same expectations of what that role might look like. And so, probably the biggest problem you tell me if I'm, I'm, I'm accurate, but it all boils down to miscommunication most of the time, right? Miscommunication and expectations, expectations yeah. that haven't been clearly communicated and the other person is not meeting our expectations. So we get very unhappy and resentful about that. Right. And so if you go to your parents that have trained you in this certain way to think this certain way and have these certain expectations, then they're not really a good sounding board. Definitely not, especially since, you know, most parents want what's best for their kid. And if they feel like, you know, their kid is, you know, being treated poorly or they're only hearing one side of the story, it's not very systemic. They're not looking at the whole system here. They're just looking at one side, one perspective. And so there goes the objectivity right out the window. So they may not be getting the best advice or guidance, even though those family members and friends are great sounding boards, you just have to be very careful about, you know, what you take from what little nuggets you take from those conversations, um, which ones you actually put into use. Totally get it. So there's, and I don't know, maybe it's just my perception, but I have seen her now I've lived a lot of life. I'm going to be 43 years old. So I've seen and heard a lot of like, just kind of negativity around getting a counselor, around going to talk to somebody about your relationship. Um, I'm, obviously, you're in the business, so you've probably heard it too. What's your take on that? Well, it's like I said before, it's scary. Like you're going to go and talk to somebody about what the problems are in your relationship and it requires being very vulnerable, which also feels very gross. You know, there's going and talking to a complete stranger about how we're having issues with intimacy or anything really. It's just very, it feels very gross at first. Um, and then there's always the fear of, are they going to pick sides? You know, you have your perspective, I have my perspective. Are they going to say, oh, well, what you're doing is wrong or you should do it this way or giving all of this you know, gratuitous, unsolicited advice. Um, so it does feel very scary if you don't really understand what that process is like. Um, and also take the time to do the research. 
Uh, it's just like any other relationship in your life. You've got to, you've got to vibe. You've got to have like a good relationship with that counselor. And if you don't feel it, then it's just not a good fit. And that's okay. But finding someone that you feel like um, can align with what you're trying to say, what you're trying to communicate, someone that maybe aligns with, you know, um, whether it be male or female, any expectations that you have to make you feel comfortable, those things are very important. I'm never offended if someone just says, you like, I don't feel like we vibe. It's totally cool. I want you to get the most out of this experience. So if that's not with me, that's, I totally understand. And it's absolutely fine. I wish them the best. That's super fair. So what would you say to somebody who is like, okay, it's either we, we got to figure something out and they move toward or down the road of counseling. What is their next step? in discovering who's going to be a good fit for them? What would you suggest that people do? Um, Some therapists, myself included, we offer like free consultations. So it's just like a 15 minute phone consultation where they can ask me questions. They can ask about me, ask about my my counseling style, those types of things. Um, And you can kind of get a good feel, but it is the phone, right? So if you go into your first session and you just like, you just don't feel it, like you just don't feel the good vibe that you want to feel, it's totally okay to be transparent about that. You're not going to hurt the counselor or the therapist's feelings um, by telling them that, because like I said, it's it's kind of ingrained in us to really want what's best for whatever client is in front of us. And if that means that we are not the practitioner for them, that's okay. We can help lead them in the right direction, find out a little bit more about what they're looking for and help give them referrals for that. Oh, that's awesome. That's nice that you do that. And I'm sure you in like in any industry, you kind of have colleagues and stuff that you trust and um, have maybe worked with for a while. Absolutely. That's great that you share that. What can they expect in their first session? Ooh. So in the first session, you basically you're downloading information. So even though you fill out the intake paperwork beforehand, the therapist has already looked at it, all that stuff, it is mainly a download of information. So tell me, you know, what you want to get out of this experience and what are your goals for going through this experience and hearing from both of them and what their perspectives are. Um, A lot of it is just what we call like joining. It's just like, let me get to know you. You're going to get to know me. I'll answer any questions that you have. And then by the end of the session, we basically say, okay, so in between sessions, I'm going to put some goals together for you based on what you've told me. This is not about me telling you what to do. This is based on you telling me what you want to get out of this. I put a plan together and then we go forward with, you know, scheduling the next session. If they don't feel comfortable at the end of the session, then that's something we can talk about too. And then, like I said, always offer referrals or some other sort of guidance that they're looking for. But mainly that first session is just like, getting to know you, right? It's like speed dating, but a little bit longer. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So what kinds of questions would we be expected to answer, um, you know, before the first session? Like, what does the questionnaire look like? Yeah. So the questionnaire kind of goes through a lot of not only basic stuff, like tell me, you know, about your, your sleeping, eating, healthy habits, that type of thing. Also tell me about your relationship status, how long you've been together. um, How concerning is this problem that you've come to me with today? Um, A little bit about your family history, your family of origin, who you grew up with. um, A lot of those types of questions. Um, And then depending on what we've talked about in the consultation or any, any other 
any other information that they've provided for me. I'll also send out questionnaires about, um, you know, adverse childhood experiences. We call it an ACE score. So those that have experienced a lot of trauma in their childhoods, um, that's something that I might send over to them, to them as well so that I have a better understanding of, you know, some of the trauma beforehand so that I have a, a little bit of a different lens that I'm looking through when we're talking in that first session. I'm going to hang on that for a second. Sherry knows why, because I've been going through, I've been dealing with, and I think, you know, too, I think we've talked about it. So I've been working through a lot of childhood trauma stuff. And before, how do I say this? There's some things that are actually childhood traumas for me that at first I didn't recognize as traumas. And I didn't recognize that that's the reason that I think the way I do act the way I do. Like I didn't even know that that's just not normal shit kids go through. Yeah. So what happens in that case? Like, how do you unpack that? You, you must figure that out way later. Like, how does that go? Yeah. So trauma that hasn't been addressed often comes across as just personality traits. Yeah. It's just who I am. It's just what I do. Um, but after you uncover some of those defense mechanisms, communication styles, those, those self-beliefs that we have, when we start to unpack those, like, you know, when did you first notice that you were doing that? Oh, well, for as long as I can remember. Well, that serves you in some way. Does it feel safer when you do that? Does it, what does it serve for you? We don't ever do something without some sort of uh, return on our investment, right? We behave in certain ways because in most cases, it's going to protect us. So unpacking some of those personality traits, a lot of times end up just being residuals of trauma that kind of contextually form our personality. So over time, over a few sessions, we start to uncover what is really just like personality and what is something that you've developed over time as a result of trauma. I have a question to go with that. So specifically with what Katie said, is there ever a time that you've seen a couple where you said, hey, individual counseling is needed before we can progress? Or is it always something like, hey, you can go do that work and we can still continue this simultaneously? What does that look like? So it's, it just really depends on the couple, but absolutely. A lot of times I will suggest that they go to see their individual counselors like on their own. Um, sometimes I'll prescribe it before continuing with couples counseling, especially if it's very high conflict where they, they can't even communicate with each other in the same room. Sometimes I'll prescribe like, hey, four to five sessions in your own individual counseling, and then we'll come back together. And then you can just continue to resume your individual counseling as well as your couples counseling. Um, any situation where um, there is any suspected domestic violence involved, there will be no couples counseling occurring in those situations because it can be very dangerous um, for the victim of that relationship. So I will refer both of them to not only individual counseling, um, but also there's counseling for domestic batterers that I will also refer the other individual to. Uh, but couples counseling cannot continue in that situation because it's unsafe. Yeah. Yeah, I would imagine. So... You suggest that they go, so, okay, I'm just going to back up real quick. So you're uncovering some past trauma that one of the partners has not uh, addressed. So then you would take them on individually or you would suggest somebody else take them on individually. Okay. Because then that causes a conflict, right? 
Yep, absolutely. It can create what we call multiple relationships. So if I'm seeing a couple and then I start to see one of the individuals on an individual basis as well, it creates a very awkward relationship for me and the other partner of the couple because now I've spent more time with the other person. Um, and that creates just a culture of maybe I shouldn't trust everything we talk about in couples counseling. Um, so I always refer out for individual counseling and then I just maintain as their, their couples counselor. Except for in the beginning, right? Because you see them each individually in the beginning, like yes. for one so, session. Yeah. So a lot of times I like to see each of the members of the couple individually for one session, just to, again, kind of download some information. Um, when you start couples counseling, again, it's really scary. So there might be some things that you might say, like, I really want to talk about this, but I feel really weird bringing it up. Like, can you like help me navigate how to bring this up? So that's why I like to for transparency's sake, meet with each member of the couple individually to help gather a little bit more of that information and then slowly integrate that and bring that into session because there are no secrets. Um, secrets in couples counseling is just not going to help our cause um, and it's not going to be in the spirit of transparency, vulnerability, or healing. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so I read this book a long time ago about love languages. You know what book I'm talking about? You must know what book I'm talking about. And that really opened up my eyes. And I learned a lot just from reading that book and figuring out what my own are. And then, you know, having my, my partner do the same test and um, come up with complete opposite love language, like could not be more opposite, right? Do you work with that at all? And do you think that that is important in the whole expectations of it all? Yeah, I think love languages are valuable. I think knowing what the difference is in your love languages is valuable information. Do I think it's like the end all be all of things? Definitely not. Those things can be navigated. So most often with love languages, we tend to show love in the way that we like to receive it. Mm -hmm. And not necessarily are we curious about, oh, do you like receiving love this way? Because that's right. just what we know. It's what we like. It's what we're comfortable with. So when I say it can be navigated, it just comes from a place of curiosity. Let me find out what feels like love to you so I can show you love in that way. This is how I like to be loved. So that as long as each partner knows what that love language is, it can be navigated. So it isn't like the, oh, we're so totally different. This is not going to work. Not at all. It's just one of those things in a relationship, the many compromises that we make for the good of the relationship and the other person. Makes sense. How often does, is intimacy a problem? Very frequently. Um, especially when it comes to like high conflict. Um, infidelity aside, obviously when there's infidelity involved, there is a lot of intimacy related issues with that. Um, but anytime there's high conflict, resentment starts to build, right? If we're high conflict and we can't resolve conflict, everything just gets rug swept. Right? It just goes right under the rug, right under the rug until neither of us in our bad mood anymore. And then we're going to say, hey, do you want to go out to eat? And then wash, rinse, repeat every single time. So right. over time, that resentment starts to build up and then intimacy becomes an issue. And we might not be able to nail why that is. Like, I don't know why I don't want to be intimate with you, but I just not feeling it. So after kind of digging up a little bit of, okay, so tell me how you guys resolve conflict. Tell me how you guys solve your problems, how you communicate and finding little ways to resolve some of that resentment today. Not necessarily things that have already happened because we get to that, but things that are happening right now to help get on a really good trajectory of how we communicate. That is often the core of intimacy struggles is poor conflict resolution and poor communication. Like I said, infidelity aside. Yeah. Yeah. 
I just see so many posts about, you know, um, usually they're anonymous, of course. And it's, and it's like, well, how often do you do it one, you know, each week or each month? And I feel like there's probably a lot of struggle with couples out there. Maybe one partner, it's not their love language and they, you know, it's not really something that's on their minds. And then the other partner, it really is their love language and they like need that sort of sense of closeness. How do you navigate that when one's just not into it? Well, there's a variety of questions I think that have to be answered first. Um, one very first thing is like biological reasons. Are there any biological reasons that sex drive could be low? So is it a testosterone issue? Is it a hormone issue? Is it a thyroid issue? Is it any of these variety of issues? Once we can rule those out, then there's typically something else there, especially if it's changed over time. Like if you get into a relationship with someone who doesn't have a very high sex drive, but you do, 10 years down the line, now you're very resentful about that. Well, you kind of knew that like going into it. So if your expectations have now changed or you're not okay with it, then that's something else that we have to navigate. So first biology has to be ruled out that there's no issues going on there. And then most frequently low sex drive is, it's a very much an emotional thing. It's a, there's very much an emotional connection, especially for women yeah. to have the physical part, but the emotional part has to get met too. So is that like never the case for men? No, there's always exceptions to those things, but more frequently than not, it's women that need to have those emotional needs met in order to meet the physical needs. So I mm-hmm. hope that answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. I just feel like it's a huge topic. Absolutely. Um, I, I see a lot of communication, sex, and money. Yep. So let's talk money. <laughs> <laughs> what are what are the typical conflicts? I mean, uh, outside of maybe being, um, you know, nervous because you don't have enough because it's difficult to provide. Like obviously, there's those stresses, but what other stresses come into play? how we spend money, um, how much money is being spent on a variety of different things. Money means something different to everybody. Yeah. So we grow up, we have a, we create what money means to us. For some people, it's about security in its basic form, right? Being able to provide like what you just described. For some people, it's power. For some people, it's recognition. For some people, it's the ability to, you know, give. So like give to like charities and things like that. Um, For some people, it's like admiration. I want people to admire me for how much money that I have. Um, Success, like money means something different to everybody. So if you have two people that don't realize that they have different attachments to money or different meanings to money, that's where we see a lot of conflicts. Mm. I want to donate, you know, this amount of money, this percentage of money every year. Well, I don't because I don't feel like that that's Um, I think that's dangerous for our savings account. I feel like we should save more money than that. Then we're clashing because we don't understand that this person over here has a security meaning attached to money and that it's scary to spend money. So if this person over here is willing to compromise and validate how the other person is feeling about money, we can navigate that too. But we kind of have to get down to like, what does money mean to you? And then find some way to validate and compromise the other's position 
to go forward and decide like, okay, this is how we're going to approach money. This is how we're going to spend money, save money, all of those things. But money is very uncomfortable to talk about. Um, so those are often conversations that we neglect until it's a problem. Like he came home with a $5,000, you know, dirt bike or whatever it is and didn't consult me first, then it's a problem because not only now is it a money issue, but maybe it's a dishonesty issue. Maybe it's a, you know, life choice issue. Like now it's like all of these other things instead of just talking about, Hey, this is what money means to me. And I think we should have a deeper conversation about it. Mm -hmm. Do you find yourself suggesting like some sort of compromise, you know, to the fact of, Hey, if it's X amount of dollars or more then there needs to be agreement between the two parties before that gets spent. And if it's under that, then go ahead and do what you need to do. Because I feel like there's a lot of times when there's one of the partners is like you said, it's a security thing and whether they have the means or not, it doesn't matter. It's still a security thing. And then the other one's like, well, why the hell do we work so hard if we don't enjoy it? You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. I think that threshold has to be decided upon with the couple, right? Because I know it's not my job to give advice. It's my job to help them figure out what that compromise looks like for them. So, you know, what dollar amount are you comfortable with? What are you comfortable with? What percentage of your paycheck are you comfortable with? How much is going into savings? Like that's a conversation that I can help lead for them, but that's a compromise they have to come up with between the two of them and make sure that both parties are happy with whatever they come up with. Yeah. I have another question about finances. So do you find that couples struggle, whether it's male, female, 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 male, male, whatever, um, if one person makes a substantial amount more than the other, like, does that, because I've seen where the person who makes money is the saver, but then the person who doesn't is the spender. And so that also creates conflict. So do you see that often or no? I see it a lot. Um, there's often disparity between when one person makes a lot more than the other, um, the person that makes a lot more, we don't know what their meaning of money is. Maybe they're just going above and beyond because it makes them feel really powerful and successful, or maybe they grew up being very insecure about money and not having a lot of it. And so spending, it makes them feel very icky. Um, and the other person is like, oh, well, I grew up like totally fine. Why aren't we going out to dinners more frequently or those types of things? So again, it kind of comes down to like, this is the money for the household. And if we're agreeing on this is the money for the household, we get to determine together how it's spent, not necessarily boiling down to, well, you make this much more, you make this much more. You know what I mean? So that both people are honored. To go along with that wasn't exactly what you asked, but I do see this a lot in whether it's Mom Nation or other groups, but the whole stay-at-home parent phenomenon. So either it's a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad, um, you know, they're not physically bringing in financial money, right? They're not bringing in money for the family, but before anyone gets upset, hear me out. There's plenty of other ways that the stay-at-home parent is contributing financially because you don't have to pay for childcare. You don't have to pay for any of those things that would be required for parents that work outside of the home. They cook and clean and they're limo drivers and they do all of those things, right? So all of those things do contribute to the family financially, but sometimes there is a disconnect in what exactly does that mean? So even though I don't work, am I still entitled to spend money? Like, am I still allowed to spend money because I don't make the money? 
You know what I mean? And that comes down to what does money mean to both of us and what type of culture are we creating in our family that makes everyone feel like our money is our money. And this is your job that you go to nine to five Monday through Friday. But then this is also what I do from the home. So I do see a lot of insecurity from stay at home parents of like, walking on eggshells. I don't know if I can buy this, if I should buy this, if I need to get permission to buy this, that type of thing, or feeling like the other parent who does work is, is holding that over their heads. So again, it kind of comes down to what exactly does money mean to you and how can we navigate both of those meanings together and find a compromise where both feel like they are contributing equally in some way or another. I think yeah. that's huge what you just said. Huge because in that same scenario, I feel like a lot of those people, the ones that do stay home and they don't have, you know, they're not the ones that go to the job every day. They don't feel like they're actually contributing financially, even though they are. And I mean, I think we need to scream that from the rooftops and everybody needs to understand that the breadwinner also that, Hey, this is, this is leverage, right? Like we're leveraging. And so that makes a lot of sense. It's giant. I think that would be a good homework assignment is like to go research how much daycare, cause I know, um, I'm a single mom. So like the breadwinner, maybe, you know, in those situations, like, Hey guys, this is your homework, go home. And I want you to calculate what does daycare look like? Because I know, and it's, it's terrible. Um, but like, I think maybe that would be a good exercise for the person, those people that don't correlate a stay at home mom as valuable or contributing because you're right. What exactly what you said is that's their savings. So guess what? If you were divorced, right. If this counseling doesn't help and you get to that point, you are going to be paying for that. Yep. So, do you, do you see, um, I just feel like with my friends and stuff now, I'm seeing more of this phenomenon where married couples don't have joint bank accounts. They don't have joint money. Like this is my money. This is your money. And like, I'll pay you half the rent. Are you seeing that more now or? I don't think I'm seeing it more, but I certainly see it. And I think if it works, that's cool. I don't think there's anything wrong with having two different bank accounts. Then you have maybe a joint account that you dump a little bit of money in and that's what's used for rent and bills and childcare and all that stuff. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that as long as both parties agree that that meets their expectations of whatever their roles are in their relationship and they're cool with it. Um, Some people feel better having their own bank accounts because, you know, I spend a lot of money at Starbucks and I really don't want that showing up on the bank statement every other day or whatever the case may be. That's totally fine. I think whatever works for you works as long as both parties are in agreement to that. Yeah, that makes sense. So keeping on the topic of money, if, if it gets to a point in a couple's relationship that they feel that, or one of them feels, or somebody feels that moving toward, um, you know, moving into counseling is really the next step. There may be some hesitation due to the cost. Have you dealt with that? Absolutely. Um, As I said previously, like a lot of people approach couples counseling as like a last ditch effort. Uh, You know, it's like, it's either this or, you know, we're going to separate or get divorced. And it's unfortunate that we don't take into consideration that it's often like an insurance policy. You pay insurance on your cars and your house and you pay health insurance. You pay for all those things so that you can be safe, healthy, protected, et cetera. So 
cost is always going to be a thing, no matter what. It's important. It's 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 our world. We have right. to take into consideration how much things cost. Um, health insurance is valuable for all of your health related needs. When it comes to counseling, it gets a little bit tricky. So. Insurances don't typically cover couples counseling. So where it's two people coming together for like marriage or relational counseling, generally one of the individuals in the relationship has to be the identified client. And that identified client has to carry a diagnosis in order to bill insurance. A lot of people don't realize that. And then they get their treatment plan and they're like, whoa, hold on a second. We're here for couples counseling. And now I've got some diagnosis. I, I, I didn't agree to that or I'm not comfortable with that. And unfortunately, that happens a lot. I hear about it a lot because unfortunately, insurance companies don't value uh, marriage and couples counseling as much as they do like individual counseling. So just know that the investment that you do make into couples or marriage counseling, um, if you are not comfortable with being an identified client and carrying a diagnosis, that oftentimes, you know, cash pay or private pay um, is the other option. Um, but most therapists, myself included, you can use like your HSA or your FSA through your employer. Um, you can use that too. Um, but I think it's a very important thing to call out that insurance doesn't just automatically cover couples counseling. It's one person as the identified client. And um, the codes and things, which all gets very complicated, just includes the primary client with a family member. So just couples couples therapy, excuse me, by itself is not typically something that's covered. So it's a very important question to ask whatever therapist that you are looking to um, start treatment with. But what if is, they, go ahead, Cher. I was just going to say, so say Katie and I are going to couples counseling with you. Mm -hmm. And so I'm the primary identified with a diagnosis. And I also wanted to go to individual therapy. Now that prevents me too, because I'm only allotted so many hours typically, right? So does that cause tr trouble for that? Um, sometimes it depends on your insurance, depends on what your coverage is. Um, but mo more often than not, insurance gets to dictate how many sessions that you get given your diagnosis. And that's something that can kind of prohibit a lot in couples counseling too. So if you have, you know, a diagnosis of let's say like adjustment disorder, let's just say, and they say, okay, you should be able to wrap that up in 10 sessions. Well, a lot of times in couples counseling, 10 sessions is not going to cut it. Um, not all the time, but a lot of times in my experience. Um, so not only does insurance get to dictate how many sessions that you get, um, but they also get to know like what your diagnosis is. So that diagnosis is also attached to you. And if that's not something that you are comfortable with um, going to couples counseling, that's something that you really need to bring up prior to your intake session to make sure that you know exactly how it's going to be billed for insurance. Um, but does that mean you can't use your insurance for both? Not necessarily. Um, it just has to be coded correctly for individual versus individual with a family member. Interesting. So how much is a session? I mean, I'm sure it's different depending on where you're at, um, but for you. Um, for myself, uh, so intake sessions, which is the very first session that we have, that's where we do like assessment and treatment planning. That session is 140 um, and it's 50 minutes long. All sessions are 50 minutes. 
Um, and then every session ongoing is 125. So for 45 to 50 minutes is 125 um, ongoing, just except for that very first session. Makes sense. And then do, do the couples have to see you in person? No, definitely not. So I offer telehealth and in person um, because gas prices are crazy, right? So yeah. sometimes, uh, sometimes that's just what we have to do to accommodate work schedules, school schedules, everything else. So telehealth is certainly offered as well. That's awesome. But only for Arizona, only within Arizona, right? Yes. So whatever clinician you go with, like myself, I'm only licensed in the state of Arizona. So I can't do telehealth or provide treatment for telehealth um, to any other person that's in the other state. Um, that's because of licensing issues. If you find a provider that can go out of state, cool. Um, but anytime that you are out of state, I can't have a session with you. Sometimes I have clients that will go on vacation when they have their session and they'll say, hey, I'm in California or whatever during our session, I won't be able to treat them. And that's for the client's benefit. So if there was a crisis situation, if there was an emergency, I have no idea where they're at. So I can't very well send them crisis or help in any way if I have no idea where they are. So I can only treat uh, via telehealth in the state of Arizona. So talk to me about crisis. So if somebody were in another state and like, give me an example of something that were ha would happen that you would be involved or that you would be helpful in like what situations? Um, so like here in the state, if I was on telehealth with somebody, mm -hmm. Yeah. So if I'm in session and someone's having um, suicidal thoughts or suicidal ideation, um, self-harm, um, where they have plan and intent to hurt themselves, that's a crisis situation where I would send crisis, a crisis team out to assess them. Um, if they are in the home with someone and domestic violence is um, suspected, um, if I am on a telehealth call with someone where child abuse or neglect is suspected, um, as a mandated reporter, that's something that I would have to report. Um, that's That one's not necessarily a crisis unless it's happening, or I know that it's happening right now, um, but that's something that would still have to be reported either way to DCS. So those are mostly the two big ticket items are suicidal ideation or self-harm or the intent to harm somebody else. That makes sense. Wow. You handle a lot. There's a lot to what you do, like just kind of like an onion. Um, so I want to take you back to the info session. And you had said at the beginning of our episode, when we were talking about it, you had said, um, you know, what are your sleeping and eating habits? So obviously the way somebody takes care of themselves physically and probably mentally, right. Um, are they getting enough sleep? Are they getting enough rest? Are they um, giving themselves breaks, you know, meditation or whatever it is that people do? Um, I, I feel like not a lot of people pay attention to the physical, their physical health like that and understand how much it plays into, because everything's so connected, right? How much it plays into their ability to, to have a relationship with another person. Um, quite a while ago, it feels like a while ago now, it probably wasn't, but quite a while ago, I decided to really get a handle on my health, eating, um, supplements, working out, stop drinking, stuff like that. And lo and behold, I wasn't so bitchy, you know, like it was weird. <laughs> Can you speak to that a bit? 
Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of like what I was referring to earlier about, you know, intimacy issues, we always want to rule out something biological going on. So I like to recommend like blood work. When was the last time you had a physical kind of to rule out any vitamin deficiencies or anything that's going on. Um, one vitamin deficiency that's super, super common in Arizona that not a lot of people are aware of are vitamin D deficiencies. Yeah. Um, and that can cause crazy amounts of fatigue. And when we are tired, we are often very grouchy, right? <laughs> so uh, we end up using copious amounts of caffeine to keep us going. So a lot of times I find clients that come in with um, anxiety related symptoms. Once we start walking through some of their, like their routine, their self-care routine, and I find out that they're having four or five cups of coffee a day. Um, they're only getting you know, five hours of sleep. And it's like, wow, okay, well, caffeine intake is going to have a huge impact on your mood, which is going to make you feel very anxious. Eating is also something that plays into that too. If we are going into you know, five, six, seven hours of the day before we eat, our blood sugar has tanked. And then we eat something because we're starving and that shoots our blood sugar all the way up and then it comes crashing back down. And that's when we can either feel anxious, jittery, depressed, all of those things. So blood sugar and um, moods also go hand in hand. So that's why eating, sleeping, the amount of caffeine intake, the amount of alcohol intake, nicotine, all of those things go into our overall moods. Yeah. Yeah. I think it makes a big, huge difference actually. Yeah, absolutely. Anything to add to that, Cher? Um, not on that, but I did have another question kind of in the, before the intake and everything. Um, I know this is pretty common as far as one, one person wants to go or wants to explore the idea and the other person's totally against it. How would you help what suggestions would you make to lessen those fears of the other individual and get it to a point to where maybe they would consider trying counseling? Yeah, um, I offer to the partner that's reached out to me for couples counseling, I offer um, for their partner to just give me a call, like have a phone conversation, just like a 15 minute conversation so that maybe I can address what some of their concerns are, what some of their fears are just to help them feel more comfortable. Um, and also like just getting them in to talk and that this isn't going to be like a session where you just complain about the other person or point fingers at the other person. And you're not going to be under attack. You're not going to be on trial. And a lot of times that's what makes one partner more resistant to coming to couples counseling is if the other person has initiated it, they already feel defensive before they've walked into the room. So they're already ready to defend themselves. So reaching out for a quick, um, 15 minute phone call, if they're open to that is something that I always throw out there. Um, and then if they really don't want to, and they're resistant, I will still encourage the partner that reached out to come in and pursue individual counseling. And if the other partner wants to join in after session one, that's awesome too. Oh yeah. That's a good idea. So let's just say the unfortunate happens and they end up going separate ways and one of, and they've been seeing you and one of them wants to continue seeing you. Is that allowed? Do you do that? Because I know like if they're in couples, you don't see them individually. So what about if they're like not in couple anymore? <laughs> right. So um, that does come up sometimes. Um, the important thing is that both partners agree to that. 
So if there's a husband and a wife and the wife says, you know, I've been seeing you for a long time. I feel really comfortable talking to you. Um, we're not going to be together anymore, but I want to continue to see you on an individual basis. Um, the other partner has to like agree to that. They have to be okay with that too. Because not only are, am I terminating the couple's relationship, but it's still very important to me that that other partner walks away from this relationship feeling like I've honored and validated their feelings and their experience. And I don't want them to ever be turned off to any future therapy experience they might have in their lives. Yeah. So it my impact on them um, causes them to six months from now go get individual counseling on their own because they had a positive experience with me as a clinician that's really important to me so both partners need to be okay with it and then at that point i can split the file and continue to see one of them on an individual basis i love that you do that and it shows like how passionate you are about counseling and how important it is because you want them to have a good experience regardless Absolutely. It's really, really important to me because I hear more often than I would like people that have had really negative experiences in counseling and it's really turned them off to the idea of it. Um, and that it just, it breaks my heart that people would rather just suffer by themselves um, without the tools that are required because they've had a poor experience. So whether it's, um, a situation that we just walked through where they split up or they come in and they're like, you know, I don't think that like we vibe. I don't think you're the therapist for me. That's okay. That's fine. Like I would rather give you some referrals so that you find someone that you really feel comfortable with because at the end of the day, my most important value is that you feel happy and that you heal from whatever it is that you're experiencing, whether or not I'm the person that helps you through that that's not important to me. What's important is that you get what you need out of it. I think that's giant. Um, having had some experience with this in the past, I think it's important that people out there that are listening understand that you're an individual. So what happens in your office isn't necessarily what happens in somebody else's office and vice versa. And I feel like sometimes we can, as humans, just kind of uh, assume every experience is going to be the same. Um, you know, my husband and I in, in the past did see somebody who we fired them, um, but we did see somebody that um, almost it seemed like we would have our conversations after the session and it seemed like they were trying to make us fight more. And, and we would come in and we would be happy with each other and happy with the progress that we had, you know, had experienced over the week. And they would kind of bring things up that just dug into both of us. And we found ourselves on a not speaking basis after the, the session more often than not. Mm. And I don't feel, obviously we fired him. <laughs> I don't feel like that is uh, hopefully not a common experience, but that's obviously not a constructive experience. And I'm sure that that's not the case in, in everybody's sessions. Yeah, definitely not. Um, I mean, I will say that, couples counseling is hard. And I, I relate it to those, you know, little pullback cars, mm -hmm. that have, the ones that you have to pull back in order to see them go forward. Sometimes it feels like that. Sometimes it's like, wow, we came to couples counseling and we're, we argued three times this week and we only argued once last week. And but that's because we're finding different ways to bring these issues to the surface so that we can resolve them. So sometimes it does feel like 
ugh, like I thought we were supposed to feel better after session one. That's not always the case. That being said, one of the things that's important to find in every session are the exceptions. What are the things that went really well over the last week or two weeks, however long it's been since I've seen you? I'll even take what didn't suck. I'll take that too, just so that we can find things that went particularly well because our brains as humans, we like to go first for the negative. Like, oh, well, we got into a fight about this and this and this instead of going for, no, I really want you to find what the exceptions were over the last time period since we've seen each other. So there should always be some sort of exceptions or positivity seeking in every session. If it's a particularly elevated session where people are feeling kind of flooded, kind of agitated, I won't allow my clients to leave my room if anyone's crying or anyone's super angry. If that means we have to go a few minutes over, I will make sure my next client knows um, that I just, sorry, I'm running a few minutes late, um, but that's not the way I want anyone to leave my office. Um, that's just really important that even if you had a particularly hard session where you guys went through a lot of really heavy stuff, I don't want you leaving feeling elevated because I don't want that to be an issue later. Just leave it in here. Let's make sure everyone comes back down to baseline and I'll see you guys next time. Yeah. Brilliant. Because a lot of that did go home and it just wasn't good. Which is why if you think about that, Katie, like your experience, think about if you're in an abusive relationship and now it's elevated and you can go home. Um, So I'm glad that you brought that up because I had that experience in the past um, where we were seeing a marriage counselor, but it was an abusive relationship and it escalated it a hundred times worse. Hmm. So I'm sorry to hear that was your experience. No, I mean, it wasn't the counselors, but I'm, I'm just glad, like, I didn't even know that at that point either, but I, as counseling continued, he picked up on it and he ended it as well. So, but I didn't know that that was a rule either, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything else to add, Cher? Or any other questions? Um, I was going to ask you, do you know the current divorce rate in the U.S.? Ooh, Ooh the current divorce rate, I don't. Um, I do know that we saw a significant increase um, since okay. the onset of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, and, you know, people like to chalk that up to, well, I've been working from home with my spouse for the last 15 months. are <laughs> tired of seeing each other. Um, but pandemic stress went even more than that. Um, there are a lot of studies that are now coming out um, related to people who have actually had COVID um, that are having increased uh, probability of sleep disorders, anxiety, and depression. So because of those things, that also, as we know, bleeds into the relationship as well. So there's so much that we don't know yet, and we probably won't know for several years to come about all of the effects of the pandemic and the grief that the collective grief that we experienced um, that contributed to those numbers for sure. So I just looked up 21 since it was the whole year. It was 45%. I'm just curious, is there something that documents maybe um, the percent of marriages that are saved because of counseling? Oh, very good question. Um, I can certainly find out, but at the top of my head, I don't know what if there is one. It very well could be, and I just don't know. Okay. I imagine that might be difficult to get a gauge on that unless yeah. everybody Mm-hmm. kind of gave their, you know, it might be just like a select group if there isn't a number out there, you know what I'm saying? But that is a, that is very interesting. And um, I think that 
I mean, if there was a statistic out there, I would sure love to know it because I think that should be sung from the rooftops as well. Um, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in counseling. You know, it's just, it's, we're not born knowing everything. We're not born with the best habits and in, in all of that jazz, you know what I mean? And so I think to expect yourself to be that perfect specimen right out of the gate like that is just, it's, it's unrealistic. Absolutely. Yeah. And marriage is hard. And when you have two individuals that maybe have past trauma or things that they need to heal and work through, like it makes it even harder. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where other moms can help support um, other moms in reaching out and getting support and getting, whether it's couples or individual uh, counseling and looking beyond some of this mommy wars stuff that we have going on, whether it be stay at home or working out of the home or working from home or whatever. It's, it, it always kind of seems like we're all in a lose-lose situation no matter what we do. So if we can really support other moms and getting the support that they need, then the ones who are really struggling at home don't feel like they're doing it alone. Yeah, 100%. Just bottom line, stop being shitty to each other out there, people. Like, let so you know, good. it yeah. just it just <laughs> pushes us further and further apart. And that's not where we gain benefit by being further and further apart. We gain benefit by being in support of one another. Um, Sherry and I have always been hugely passionate about that. Uh, it's the reason why Mom Nation exists, actually. So stop being shitty, people who are shitty. Um, oh, and then be nice. <laughs> right, right. And then, well, there's reasons why they're shitty, too, because hurt people hurt people. So maybe this is a good episode if you feel like you're one of those, those ones out there that... Uh, is, is judgy and all of that jazz. Uh, we don't need it. We just don't need it. What we need is we need more people with open ears and open hearts, ready, willing, able to support one another. Um, and then, you know, receive the same in return. It really could be a pretty sweet system if we were all on board. Agreed. <laughs> all right, Diana. Well, it was amazing as always having you, if our listeners would like to get in touch, would like to consult with you for a session, uh, how would they best do so? They can go straight to my website. It's dianaizeltherapy.com right up at the top there on the top, right? There is schedule your free 15 minute consultation and we can get to chat. Sweet. All right, ladies, if you are interested in being a guest on the show, please follow us at Mom Nation. At Mom Nation USA is our actual handle. And we are on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Give us a like, send us a message, let us know why you would like to be a guest. While you're at it, like right now, listening to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform, I can't even talk. See, I told you I'm lack of sleep. Um, while you are there on your favorite podcast platform, please subscribe, download, and rate us to help us get this information out to the masses. We want you to please share with friends if you think that it would be some, some content that would really speak to them and really help them out. That is our mission. Sherry and I are, we're going to just help the world with this information, right, Cher? Yes, all the moms. Not all, all right, heroes wear capes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All right. Until next time. Thank you, Diana. Thank you, Cher. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Moms with aspiration. Moms are inspirations. Moms in circulation. Moms at their workstations. Bump, 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 bump. They make a nation. Bump, this is a mom nation.